Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on jewishcoffeehouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Welcome back to the Francisca Show, Franz Dans. This episode is a sensitive episode, so listener discretion is definitely advised. I'd like to tell you that the voice of our guest has been modified to protect her identity. Yes, she's a woman. I would like for this episode to be the beginning of a series. So if you or someone you know is suffering from addiction and would like to share their story, please do reach out. My next music project is dedicated to fighting addiction. And in the spirit of Cheshvan, Mar Cheshvan, I will be releasing that new music video. So this episode is in the theme of my projects at this time. I am also taking suggestions for new topics, so please volunteer to share your stories. As always, it's great to hear from you. Please join the WhatsApp group for further discussion. And if you or anyone you know is looking for podcast help, please do reach out. I have my DIY course that is just super easy, simple, quick, and it gets you to where you need to go. For all our new listeners, welcome and make sure to check out the backlog of this podcast as well as the other podcasts on the Jewish Coffee House Network. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Francisca Show. Today with us we have a guest who is brave enough to come on and share her personal story of addiction and recovery and life as a from woman. So thank you so much for joining us today. So glad to be here. So let's start off like we do with every other podcast like this. Tell us a little bit about your background, your Jewish background, and how your story started. So I was raised like totally secular. My family comes from Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union. So basically, I have a Jewish mother and a non-Jewish father. And when we came to the United States, basically, we, we came with like a blank slate and a lot of Jewish organizations that were willing and ready to share whatever services they could for the refugees that came. We moved into a city with a pretty good Jewish community. I grew up like totally secular because my parents had no idea what Judaism meant. My mother used to tell me like a lot of instances of anti-Semitism in her life. And I think back on like the generations of like my family, you know, everyone knew a little bit more the each generation back. I remember when I was like a kid, my great grandmother never ate shellfish and I didn't understand why. Now I like realized like she did pork, but she wouldn't eat shellfish. So like every generation back, it was more and more connected to Judaism. But obviously the Soviet Union had a very effective way of taking that out of family. So when we came to the United States, like my parents weren't like anti-Judaism at all. You know, although my mother didn't know what it meant, she knew that she was Jewish. She wasn't allowed to forget that fact. And she raised me just with that understanding. When I was a kid, I used to uh, get made fun of by my kindergarten teacher because I was Jewish. I was not allowed to play with like certain toys. In Eastern Europe or in America? Yeah, in the Soviet Union. I had to stand in the back of the line anytime we lined up because I was I was the Jewish girl. I didn't understand how they knew that because my last name was my father's. And really that was the first idea. The first time I knew I was Jewish is when I came home crying because she would be so mean. And I would be like, why is she being like this? And my mom's like, it's because you're Jewish. And that was like really like my first the first time I knew what that meant because it wasn't practiced in my home. So anyway, back to we come to America and I went to a Chabad summer camp and a reform Sunday school. So that was like my introduction to what Judaism was. 
And it was a, two very big extremes. Just having that foundation of knowing that's what I was, I like just always identified as being Jewish, not really understanding what that meant, but it continued to just be part of my identity and through like the various like Jewish organizations that I was a part of. And obviously when I was 20, like all secular Jews did my birthright trip. And I remember going to the Kotel for the first time and I had this visceral experience. Like nobody really had to explain what it meant to me, but I like physically felt like I was standing at the Kotel and I felt my mother's presence behind me and like her mother's presence behind her. And it was like, just, I get chills, like just even talking about it because it was like just such a powerful moment. And it would be great to say, and then I became from and everything was like wonderful, but that wasn't the case because I was like struggling with a lot of emotional issues and a lot of uh, substance abuse issues at the time. But um, like that experience, like just having that, that like feeling like in my, what I now know as my neshama was really like, a turning point because I could just really solidify like who I was like as like a human being and then also a totally secular program but there was a program called Israel Shabbat Experience where basically we were in a hotel in Tel Aviv and two from families joined us and they just had like classes and there was uh there was two families and like the wives and like their kids they just had like little breakout sessions and one of them had like two kids and one of them had three kids and I was convinced that the one with three kids was in a cult for some reason. The one with two wasn't, but three was like with just way too many children. But like I sat there and I listened and it was really, it was my first introduction to I guess like Haredi Judaism, like just meeting like black hat yeshivish people and, and like just something that like really stuck out to me is that they seemed happy and it was something that I like did not have an experience of, but they just looked fine. I don't know how like how else to describe it, but they had like something that I didn't and I really aspired to to have what they did and obviously like in my head i'm like that means orthodox judaism is the key to happiness well if i can add a little bit my background has also to do with russia a little bit and knowing just in terms of language when you ask someone how they are in russian you, you answer normal instead of good or great so that's just your standard response normal not smiling on the street when you're walking around is the normal yeah, it's a huge culture thing. I actually, I work in the substance use field and I don't necessarily work directly with clients, but like in the times I have, people would ask me like, do you speak Russian? And I say, yes, but I can't speak to clients in Russian because I don't know how to ask, how are you feeling? And like, part of me was like, is it because just like the Russian language is limited or that was just my upbringing that nobody ever asked those specific questions, but it's a very big cultural thing. But outside of the culture is just had a lot of stuff I needed to work on. But from the time I was 20, like seeing what from Judaism was really opened my eyes to like, I knew like in my head, like what the destination was like that I wanted to reach, but it just took like many years of struggle to get there, if you will, like a couple of detours. But nonetheless, after that trip, I came back, I don't know, I might have signed a paper saying yes, a care of organizations may contact me or they just found my number. I don't know how, but whatever. But uh, after that, like I, I got in touch with other care of organizations or now I say they got in touch with me and, and I always maintained a relationship with those organizations when I was in college and then post-college and just like really through the whole process. In the end, I ended up becoming from when I was like, I think like 25, maybe like 26. Anyway, it took about like seven, seven years from the time I like saw like what kind of like Judaism is the truth, like at least in my life, to the time that I actually like became Shomer Shabbos. I went to seminary in the meantime, I went on all these like 
retreats and trips and like learning programs, but really it took about seven years. And a lot of that had to do with, with addiction. So let's go into that. Yeah, absolutely. So that happened long before the trip to the hotel. Like when I was a kid, it's funny, I, when I was a kid, I went to public school and we'd have these abstinence-based like school programs that like drugs are bad. And like, obviously no kid goes to school when the teachers, this is a good idea. But the school I went to was like a regular public school. And we had a program called D.A.R.E., which was like drug abuse and resistance education. And a police officer would come in and he'd be like, drugs are bad. And they'd be like, yeah, you're right. They're terrible. I was lucky that I didn't grow up with substance abuse in my home. My, my parents drank as, well, all Soviet, you know, all <laughs> Russians do. So I grew up not knowing what like drugs were. But also, like, I didn't really fit in 100% anywhere I went. I have, like, a small group of friends. I didn't really, I just, I was always uncomfortable in my skin. So, obviously, as a kid, it's like, you know, learning about drugs. Yes, they're terrible. And then, like, puberty hit and adolescence hit. And I just got, like, much more uncomfortable in my skin. And I just, like, didn't really fit in anywhere. And um, I was a camp counselor when I was, like, like yeah, when I was 14. And I was, like, the youngest there because I was the junior counselor. And this is, like, all secular. And, like, all the older counselors were, like, smoking pot and drinking and I just like admired them so much and I didn't start because I thought they were cool it's because they explained that there is something in the world that you can take outside of yourself to make yourself feel different on the inside just like that description I was like All right, where, where do I can I get up? some yeah let's do it without even any questions so obviously I started with the most easily accessible substances like and alcohol. Alcohol was like totally, because my parents didn't, we don't have substance abuse in my family. My parents were very anti any sort of drugs. So obviously, you know, I know some families like, God, okay, not my, for my parents, it was like, no way, not a chance. So I just experimented. I don't even know if you would call it experimenting because I re, like the minute I started like getting drunk and high, like I knew like this was it. I didn't want to feel any other way than under the influence. And basically, it just, from day one, it like spiraled out there. You know, I didn't, there wasn't, like they say, like pot's a gateway drug. I don't necessarily think that really applies to somebody that would consider themselves an addict. Because if cocaine was, was the first one, first substance offered to me, it like, it, then cocaine would have been my gateway drug. Because it wasn't really about like the substances I used. And it was much more about the effect that they gave to me and like their ability to allow me to not feel or feel heightened, but different. So basically, like, that's how it started. I was in high school. I was 14, started drinking and smoking. By 16, I was using cocaine daily because I knew somebody that sold it. So, I, you know, also a lot of people say the first time they tried their drugs, people, like, offer it to them. That wasn't my case at all. Like I said, it wasn't really about the opportunity and it was more about the effect. So I found somebody I knew who was, like this particular substance and I would call them up and say I would like to buy some off of you so there was no like free samples like first time hook line and sinker it was me seeking it out so anyway availability wise 16 I used cocaine 17 I was using meth every day and then by at 19 I started using heroin and that was because that was what was available to you or you needed a bigger fix now at every point I would say that it was really there's stimulants and depressants like drugs like come into like on how they affect you. So like there's certainly like withdrawal symptoms from like any substance. Some include mild physical and some as an addict, like all of them were emotional and cognitive withdrawals. But the physical withdrawal substances like really didn't come into my life until I was until I started using opiates and heroin. And it was really just like accessibility. But also once I found heroin, it was like basically like the way I considered it is I had a hierarchy of what like if I had a hundred dollars 
where does that $100 go? It's like a budget. What do I prioritize with my purchases? And once I was introduced to heroin, that certainly took up the majority of my budget. Is it because you got much more for the money? The effect of heroin is unlike other substances, I would say. I really loved it because stimulants, you just become hyper aware just very physically in your body and like that high is wonderful and I sought it out. Heroin does the opposite and you literally are able to completely exist without existing. (laughs) Like it was a, it's a crazy feeling to like be completely, like to be able to wake up and walk around and still have like relationships and be completely like numb inside. It was like this like crazy dichotomy, but like really I sought that numbness and that feeling because if drugs, I always, I always tell people like if, if the first time I ever used any drug, I had this horrible reaction, like where I was just like violently ill and didn't feel anything like I wouldn't do it again. There was something that like caused an in- immense joy in my life and it was something positive terms of just the feeling that it brought me so that was definitely heroin (laughs) but as with that class of drugs you become physically dependent on so you go through withdrawal symptoms i started off like slow with like smaller quantities so i didn't have to like spend so much money i started with 20 dollars a day you know i was still in college like i had a part-time job i was like living with my parents so it wasn't like just i thought of it as like partying but um it took about a year and a half two years before i like really like just one day I decided like I I just don't I don't have any money so I guess I can't buy any heroin today surprising it took that long but I just remember the first time I I went through withdrawals it was like the most horrendous feeling ever and the first time I had no idea what was happening I just thought I had a stomach bug but really the rest of the time that I used drugs was like this cycle I still got like the pleasure from using it but like I would do anything to like support the physical withdrawals that came with with opiate use so that's when the roller coaster happened. I mean, really, like the roller coaster happened like years before, like while I was an addict and just using other substances. But like once it became physical, I became aware of it. If that makes any sense. Were your parents aware at all? Yes, they were blissfully ignorant yet aware at the same time. I wasn't one of the side effects of like drug use is a lot of like minimizing and hiding it from people being clean and understanding it like from from the other side of it at this point i see people who are high and i'm like who are you possibly trying to fool so i think of my parents is like on one hand like they were just in such denial because i'm an only child they try to give me like the world we moved to a new country like i was like all the eggs were in that basket and also just like they have these like morals and values that like were not in line with any of that so they would catch me when they would find drugs on me and it would always be like this is the only time i've done that you i just not that I'm a good drug addict. I'm just really bad at getting caught. This is the only time you've caught me. You know, it's the only time I did it and you just happened to catch me. And really, like, this was, like, before, like, Google and like, before, like, ads for drug treatment and before the Affordable Care Act that, like, really opened the door to treatment for any type of insurance policy. So, like, really, like, they were in the dark with what the symptoms are, like, what to look out for, and then also, like, how to treat it. Also, they didn't have a community to talk to, and it was, it still is so incredibly stigmatized. We're talking 2000, 2004, like, it was, things have not changed fast enough, but they certainly have changed in terms of, like, the resources that exist. So they didn't have it. When I was 21, I decided to go to rehab, and I sat them down, and I, and that was the first time I told them, and basically it was like a sit-down conversation. By the way, I've been using heroin for two years, and I need to go to detox today. (laughs) they were like what i was living with that they were shocked but there's a level of denial that has to go into that for like for that preservation of like our family unit that they really had to go through but i mean 
retrospect, like they knew because the thing with addiction also doesn't really just hurt you. I did some like really terrible things to impact our relationship. I stole from them often. I like brought in like really unfavorable characters to the house. I disrespected them. I, uh, I overdosed once. This is after rehab. I didn't actually stay clean in rehab. It took a little while longer, but I overdosed and my father was the one that found me not breathing with a needle sticking out of my arm. That kind of stuff, like that kind of effect that, that I had. You can only be in denial for so long at that point. They knew, but like I said, like they didn't have the resources and they didn't know what Al-Anon was. Like they were never going to send me away for being an addict. They certainly shamed me for it, but that doesn't work. <laughs> so talk to me about rehab. You decided to go on your own. Yeah, so basically, at one point, I got arrested. <laughs> I was arrested when I was 19 for possession, and it was a very, like, mild charge. The drug laws are pretty lax at this point. I have feelings about that in, in one respect or another. Basically, if I submitted to a meeting, an involuntary, like, going to 12-step meetings and involuntary probation, like, they would wipe off my charge after a few years. So I, I did that. And I started going to 12-step meetings, and that was my first introduction to 12-step. I was in no way ready to hear it. I was in, like, such a state of denial because it was, like, wrong place, wrong time. I absolutely don't have a problem. You are all in a cult, and you are all crazy. I really thought 12-step people were, like, out of their minds. Because, like, how can you experience drugs and then stop? At the same time, I used to have thoughts, when I get married, I will stop. Or, like, when I have kids, I will stop. Because I knew, like, that what I was doing is, like, not remotely appropriate. and safe for anyone like myself and people around me. It was just like such a dichotomy in my life because like, both those thoughts existed together on a consistent basis. I went to these 12-step meetings and I found like a really convenient one on my college campus where there was like two other guys who were alcoholics and also my primary drug was heroin. There's a lot of 12-step programs out there. Obviously the first one is like AA Alcoholics Anonymous, but there are offshoots and it's all based on the same 12 steps, but it really just like caters to like, my perception is wherever you feel at home is like where you should go. But like I never really connected with AA and I was in this meeting with like two people and they'd be like, be like, you have a drug problem? No. And they're like, well, what'd you do yesterday? I'm like, well, I got so drunk, I blacked out because I can't get, because I'm getting drug tested. So I can't use heroin. And in my mind, I was like, and you're, and you guys are the crazy one. And you guys are like the ones that have no control of your life. And throughout this whole time, you were completely functional in terms of school and your jobs and showing up on time. I would say that kept me sick for a really long time. I'm a pretty type A personality. There were certain times where like that, that facade was crashed. It took me six years to graduate college, six and a half years to graduate college rather than four. I, I couldn't apply to jobs that drug tested, for example. So like my life was a little limited. I couldn't travel anywhere because I would get sick from withdrawals. But I knew that if I dropped out of school, my parents, that would be the catalyst for getting kicked out. Not the drug use, but like dropping out of college. So I had to stay in college to not have to pay rent because in my mind, paying rent meant that that money would have to be spent on rent and not heroin. <laughs> and just like any other drug I can procure at the time. I was basically like doing the bare minimum to continue to use, get high and everything. And budgeting-wise, you always had jobs since you were 14. Where did you get money from? During the summers, I would work in camps. Like, I was a summer camp counselor. For anyone that sends their children to summer camp, I apologize. Because, <laughs> like, now, like, I'm a mother, and I my children are in summer camp right now. And I just, obviously, I live in a, I'm in a different world. But just, like, knowing, like, parents entrusted their children to me. I just am horrified as a parent of, like, places I send my children and just think, who knows? <laughs> Yeah, I worked at summer camps for like spending money. My parents like gave me money when I needed. The rest of the time I, I would steal money from my parents. And then at some point I would sell drugs to get 
honey. So I never made a profit. I certainly wasn't a business person, <laughs> like a businessman. It was really just the more you buy, the cheaper it is. So I would buy and then I would sell off to friends just to break even to pay for like my own habit. As a result, I got a lot of friends hooked, <laughs> hooked on drugs because of that. And that's stuff that I carry with me to this day. You know, it's like you think that well, I'm just doing it for myself. Like I'm making my own poor life decisions, but so many of, of the thought process I had around that really just got smashed the minute I got clean and saw like the damage that I had incurred, which is another reason why I didn't get clean for a really long time. Because like when you stop using the drugs, like all that comes back. You can't get high your way around like the consequences of those actions. You can only run for so long and or not. I see, I see people running for decades to this day. So back to the 12-step program. Yeah, I did my like, mandated program. I graduated. I was such a smooth talker. I graduated with a positive drug test and they wrote negative on it because I convinced them that it was an accident. Like whatever. I don't even, it's just crazy. Like I had dental work. Like, you know, just the, my intelligence has gotten me into more <laughs> trouble. I find like people who use drugs are like some of the most intelligent people you'll ever meet. And if they get clean, when they get clean, like harnessing that power, like they can just, they can move mountains. You are former Soviet Union. You're Fitting the stereotype. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I went to those meetings and I thought people were in a cult. But after a while, like, I, the court-mandated thing ended. I was done. I was still using. And, and I never had enough money. I was always sick. And I was just, like, miserable. I was, I was in a relationship. It was, like, a very unhealthy relationship at the time with somebody who was also using drugs. I just I hated myself. I didn't know what to do. And I'm really grateful that that time I got arrested, I was made to go to AA meetings. And I went to these mandated meetings. And I heard nothing. But I knew they existed. Like, drug policy has changed a lot, especially in more liberal states, more liberal states where like people are able to not be penalized for the drug use and just let go. But I find that's almost a disservice to a lot of people because that take away a resource that they might not otherwise have access to. Because at the time I wasn't willing to hear it. But two years later, when I was like, I don't know what else to do. I don't know where to go. I knew that the 12 step program existed. And that's when I like looked up NA meetings. And that was the first time I went to a Narcotics Anonymous meeting. Was that from a rock bottom moment? I've had many. One of them. It was certainly one of the first. So can you describe one or something that sticks out? I'm sure yeah. each one in its own <laughs> way has been very memorable. There are many. I mean, I would say that like, when I made a decision to get clean, I'd already been to rehab a couple times. I kept on relapsing. Yeah, there was like this one time. I know this is like it feels insignificant, but it was like, it's like such a, like a good depiction of what my life looked like. I was home one day and I hadn't used drugs in a couple of days. So I was like very sick and I finally got some heroin and I used a lot <laughs> and I was like very high. And I was like, I have accomplished it. I'm as high as I was that first time. And I was like, I have made it. This is the best feeling ever. And I went to microwave like a burrito and then I put it in and then I woke up half an hour later on my kitchen floor and then the burrito was cold. And then I like microwaved it again for 30 seconds and I woke up 30 minutes later on the kitchen floor and it was cold again. And this went on for about two to three hours. I kid you not. And, and that was literally my life. I would have five minutes of like clarity. Okay, this is what I'm doing. I'm <laughs> getting things done. And then they would just be curtailed by the effects of like drug use that I would just find myself like on the floor somewhere like unconscious for half an hour. In the moment, I didn't think much of it. But looking back, like that was like a really low point. And I actually overdosed like that week. So basically the last couple months of using, I'd say like from January to April of 2009 was like every week was subsequently like worse than the week before in my life where like I just made these like really chaotic life decisions 
that had an effect on everyone around me and myself. And it just kept on spiraling. And there was, you know, my friends gave me an intervention and I kicked them out of the house and I, I overdosed. And then my mother was like in the hospital with me pleading, like to get clean and said, no, I don't want you here. I'm fine. And what they don't tell you is that if you're an adult and, and you ask someone to leave your hospital room, then they have to leave. And if they don't want to leave, then they have to get dragged out by security. And like, the, that's all the stuff that, that happened behind the scenes that, that I didn't see. And that was like really traumatic for my mother because I told her to leave and then they had to, and she had to leave. And I was just hanging out comfortably in my hospital bed, calling my connection to get more drugs, like right after leaving the hospital. Just those like subsequent moments kept on happening. But really like in the end, what happened is I went to my drug dealer's house and, and I had a best friend since childhood and I loved her more than anything. And for a really long time, I tried really hard to make sure that she only got her drugs from me and not from our dealer, because like I knew that once she met him, she would never leave. And I would put her in like a lot of danger. And then one day I was like sitting and they obviously they had met by then because I was like, I one day and I'm like, here, just take his number and meet me here. Addiction. And then I looked at her and I was like, hey, by the way, who's the first person to ever give you heroin? And she looks at me and she was like, what do you think? And I don't know why, but that was the moment that like really shattered my heart into like a million pieces. This friend that I like cared about immensely was like on her own spiral. And I was like that catalyst for that trajectory of her life or not. But like for me in the moment, it felt like that. I saw the responsibility that I played. And the consequences of those actions. And I got up and walked out of that house and I called somebody in Narcotics Anonymous and I called my sponsor because I'd been going to meetings and I was lying about being clean because I thought I had an image to maintain in 12 step meetings. And like the reality is like they don't care. Like you just show up and you can be honest. And I called the sponsor that I had and I was like, by the way, I've been like getting high for months. And she's like, okay, are you ready to stop? And I said, yeah. And then they gave me some direction and I followed it and I've been, I've been clean since. So it was like a really, I'd say it was like a really anticlimactic rock bottom, but it was really just like the reality like hit me in the face really like immensely in the moment where I just directly saw consequences of my actions and I couldn't keep doing that to people around me and I couldn't keep doing that to myself. Talk to me about, you know, how, how your life today bridges to, to the <laughs> life. <laughs> my day. Oh my goodness. There are no words. If I had gotten everything I had dubbed for when I got clean, like I would have been selling myself so short. The reality is, is that like, I attribute everything in my life to like my recovery and like getting clean, but also like understanding that like, I'm a from woman who like lives in a mainstream Jewish community with like little FFB kids running around and a husband who like works and learns like every night. It's really mind blowing. On one hand, like I, I am still... I guess the shock hasn't worn off. In moments like this, when I like share my story, it just blows me away like how far I've come. It was a process. It took time. Like basically, like from that first time that I that I saw those from families like sharing about like how empowering Judaism is to like women and families. The point now, by the way, like when I first got clean, like I didn't. Stop it. I was involved in all these of organizations, and, and I had Rabam that I was like meeting with because I needed that connection. Like I wanted to, I wanted to get better. I just didn't know how to, and it was like step by step. So like there was a campus rabbi who I met with, and I was like, by the way, I'm a drug addict, and I'm like really like struggling. And I just got clean. I was like, I really want to like keep Shabbos, and he's like, well, I hope you go to a meeting and not a Shabbos meal if there's a meeting that helps you. And I was like, but it's Shabbos, and he's like, maybe you should chill out with that for a little bit because there's this thing called the Kuf Nefesh, and you're trying to save your life. So basically, like, I got connected to like therapists, and it was a process, and I stayed connected to the community, and then I had about five years clean. So one of the one of the principles in like a twelve step program, one of the suggestions is you would do ninety meetings in ninety days. So like, you first come, you have one day sober, a day clean. 
you go to a meeting every day for 90 days. So when I got clean, I did that because I had all this free time all of a sudden because I wasn't spending my entire day getting drugs and then being high from drugs. <laughs> so I had much more free time immediately. I went to 90 meetings in 90 days. Also, my relationship with my parents was like so damaged that I was like doing everything to get out of the house and like it was hard to be out of the house and like not get into trouble. I just went to meetings and I hung out with like people in the meetings and I made friends and I got a sponsor and then I got about five years clean. And, uh, you know, they say like you work a program and you have this like spiritual awakening. And I had about five years clean and I was feeling very disconnected to the program of Narcotics Anonymous. And my sponsor suggested I do 90 and 90, what it's called. And when they say like sponsor suggestion, what changed for me, like finally, when I decided to actually stay clean is I started like listening to the direction and suggestion of the people that like knew how to stay clean. Reality is that I didn't know how to do that at first or in general. So he said, like, you should do 90 and 90. And I was like, you are out of your mind, sir, because I am busy and I have a job and I have a life. And he's like, well, that's not really, I'm, your opinion's not so relevant in this, <laughs> in this realm. So you can either do that or look for another sponsor. And I was like, gosh, how could you say that? So um, I did 90 meetings in 90 days when I had five years clean. And about, I, I'm not even kidding, like day 87, I called him and I was like, I want to keep Shabbos. And he is not, he wasn't Jew. First off, he, he's, he wasn't Jewish. He like, but he, it's funny because he actually had sponsored a man who was like eighth generation from Tzvat, who like found himself in America due to his drug addiction. So he sponsored this guy who was like a very parady man. So he like had this foundation of knowledge. So that's why like I connected with him. So I was like, eight, like day 87, I was like, I think I want to be from Jew. And he's like, I think that's the best decision you've ever made. And like, it was Friday and I was like, but I want to go to Shabbos. And he's like, how about you finish your 90 and 90 first? And, and just around that time, I made a decision. I would keep to our mitzvahs. And, and it's really been, I've been like that since. I was like, being in a 12-step program, like really gave me a foundation for the life I live as a from Jew. Because like a 12-step program is like very spiritual in its nature, because like you need a relationship with a higher power to like, continue on you need something outside of yourself because the nature of addiction it's like a very selfish thing it's like very like introverted like it's very isolating so like you need to reach out to people or beings or deity whatever like is that is more powerful than you because obviously like you got yourself in this situation and it's really hard to get yourself out of it and that's why you rely on others and powers greater than yourself so like those muscles had been worked consistently for five years. So like by the time I decided, but obviously, like I said, I've been like in touch with all these organizations. I was going to Shabbos meals. I was going to Shabbos meals like before I got clean. I was going to Shabbos meals like when I was clean, but I was on like Shomer Shabbos, if you will. When I had a year, I went to seminary for like four months and came back because it wasn't the right time for me. Basically what happened is I knew Judaism was like where I wanted to like this. And I knew that like I would feel more fulfilled there, but I needed to work out all the emotional stuff because like Judaism in and of itself doesn't fix you. I don't want to say I was a really broken person and I had to do so much work like both in 12 step and in therapy and like in my social support and my relationships like I had to do all that work beforehand that like by the time like when I decided I'm going to be Shomer Shabbos it was like one of the easiest decisions I'd, I'd ever made because it was just coming from like such like a pure and healthy place. This is how I want to live my life and basically like from that moment and it wasn't like ashkafically like I became Shomer Shabbos and stayed like where I started I mean obviously like I'm growing like we grow every day but like in terms of like the community and like the support system like I'm in the same place I was before and it's a really high standard when I met my husband we were in Israel and he wanted to learn in Kolel and we lived in Israel and he learned full-time and 
we made it work there. And now we're back in, in the U.S., but he works, but he still manages to learn at least three to five days a week. And so like our lives are very full within our community and within like the foundation of Torah. And, you know, I, I really attribute a lot of that to like just being an active member of Narcotics Anonymous because like they, they kind of like taught me all those muscles to flex. Oh, I can't, I can't eat this. Okay, fine. I won't eat it. Like I, some, like somebody that I respect and I know is a higher authority, <laughs> you know, like a sponsor, a rub, Rabbi. the Godelador. I, I understood what it meant to like live an authentic life. That was like detrimental also to like saving my life because I wouldn't have the life I have without, without Hashem. At the end of the day, that's like the basis of it all. Like that was, Hashem led me to all those dark places for me to like find a 12-step program to build those muscles because I don't know if I would have necessarily been from, had I not, very stuck, <laughs> had, I, had I not had years of practice in, in implementing those strategies, which I do in my daily life. When did you introduce this part of yourself to your husband? Was it when you were dating? What were the dynamics? And how is this affecting your marriage? What boundaries you have created? Or are there any concerns or anything set up for triggers? Yeah, so before before I started dating, I had to have a conversation with my Rebeim about what needs to be disclosed and what doesn't in the dating process. Also, Hashem doesn't give you anything you can't handle. <laughs> It was so kind to me in the dating process that, like, like, I dated maybe, like, five guys, and it was never more than one or two dates, and then I met my husband. So it was all these things that I was so nervous about, like, having to share, because there's nothing, like, harder than, like, having these, like, innermost, like, important areas of, of your life, that really good catalyst of knowing if that person's the right person for you, whether they can take that. And then being vulnerable with them and then waiting to like disclose that stuff. Just that whole process is so challenging. And so here's what happened with, with my husband. I didn't have to share any details before dating because the way that we discussed it is like, it's not, I go to meetings. Like at this point I have 13 years clean and I had like eight years clean at the time. So like I had a considerable amount of, of recovery under my belt and I was stable and everything was fine. There's like other things that like I was told like I have to share at some point. I was taking medication for some emotional stuff, which I don't. It's funny because like the things that I thought would affect me in my marriage the most affect my marriage the least. There's like certain medications I thought that I would have to be on forever because that seemed to have the biggest effect on me. I don't. I haven't taken medication in years. I've been fine. And like certain things that I thought like I had really resolved in my life with like stuff I've worked on in therapy. I've come out in my, that I was like, oh, it's totally done, worked on it, totally come out in, in my marriage, but. Could you give some examples? Yeah, PTSD is a fun one. I was in some really unhealthy relationships in the past, and I've had some experiences in my life that, like, I, I worked through a lot in therapy and felt were really resolved, and then just being in a relationship, like, being in a marriage, like, having kids, like, the stuff that I really thought wouldn't come up did, and as a result, like, I just had to, like, have honest conversations with my husband. I'm like, okay, this is really bothering me right now. I think that this is, I'm okay right now, but let's have, put it in a contingency plan of what we should do if it keeps bothering me. Should I go back to therapy? Should I, like, see, like, a psychiatrist? Should I, like, get a new sponsor? Whatever, like, yeah, so here's what happened with my husband. I should make sure. But I didn't have to tell anyone anything. And then his rev called, I had two references. One that was, like, in, the, you know, of the school of don't tell him anything. And one who knew me better. And he's, of course, he should, he should know these things. But obviously, like, I won't tell him unless they ask. Anyway, this <laughs> rough called 
the other, the latter, and he basically said, oh, by the way, she's sober in a 12-step program. So this is before we ever even met. And I was like, you just doomed everything. Thanks. Like, not even a chance to show them my winning personality. And he said yes to meeting me. Like, obviously, like, the, it was like a more intense conversation with both Arabeam and Arab vouched that I did a lot of work. And it really shows, like, more like the pure perseverance side of me than more the... And the vulnerable side. Well, that's vulnerable, but I like think of the right word. It's more of an asset than a defect, like having gone through that at this point, that it really just shows more positive than negative. But obviously, like, from his perspective, he had a decision to make. And my husband said yes to dating me. And knowing that, going into that first date, knowing that he knew that about me was like the biggest like weight off my shoulders, because like, I already knew the type of person he was. That, like, he can look past, like, those details and, like, really see a whole person. My husband has zero substance experience in his life. He comes from a totally well-adjusted, normal family. Like, also Bolshuva, but, like, from a really stable Jewish, mind-blowing, I don't understand him. Like, well-adjusted family without, I mean, like, everyone has issues. But you know what I mean? Like, not, like, without issues. And we dated, and we talked about it, and, and he was fine. And there's certain things I laid out on the table, like, we were dating that I thought would affect our marriage that didn't. And certain things that I didn't think I needed to mention because I had already worked out the, on them that will further into our relationship we had to discuss. So, I mean, through recovery, I had to learn like the language of feelings, which is like a language that he doesn't speak. And uh, also like just working in, in recovery. It, we do speak different languages, but I think that like has been open to learning about it. When we were first married, actually, what really helped him understand me was when we... Like in Israel, nobody worked on Fridays. So on Fridays, we would get ready for Shabbos together and we would listen to a shirim by Rabbi Wallerstein. Because at the time, like Rabbi Waller, like I would listen to his shirim and I was like, wow, this is mind blowing. Like he really says some really like deep things. And I connected to him because I understood him. And, and my husband connected to him because he learned what it meant to like be in a relationship with someone that like, as he used to say, yeah, I may have baggage, but it's Louis Vuitton baggage. Just he, one of the things that really helped my husband understand me was listening to Shirim by, by Rabbi Wallerstein specifically. So like our relationship grew and like we continue to like, when I, I certainly have moments where I struggle, my struggles look much different today than they did when I like had a year clean, for example, but nonetheless. Can you illustrate a struggle? When you put, like when you put down the drugs, the person who used the drugs is there. So there's a lot of like maladaptive coping skills that we develop. I mean, just people in general who, like, struggle. I Maladaptive coping skills that I developed, whether it be, like, an unhealthy relationship with food, anxiety, and, like, overthinking. Like, there's, like, numerous things that, like, came up, like, when I, like, stopped using drugs that, like, manifested itself in my life. And I remember, like, like about a couple months ago, I had, like, a really, really, like, major thing, like, major blow up at my job. And I have, like, coping skills that I use. Like, sometimes I knit, sometimes I color, sometimes I, like going out with a podcast when I'm like really stressed like like I'll take a hot bath like there's certain things when I'm like when I'm more stressed I utilize like certain coping skills and I remember I had like this crazy blow up at my job and it was like so emotionally dysregulating and it was like it hit me so so hard and I it was Shabbos and I couldn't do anything and I had to sit with my feelings and I was like so upset about it that I couldn't sleep either so like I had Obviously, like, no drugs at this point. I couldn't color. I couldn't knit. I couldn't take a bubble bath. And I was, like, sitting with him. And I was able to, like, express all of this. And he just, like, sat with me and started reading me, like, a book with, like, a daily gratitude a day. And, like, in the moment, I was like, this is the least helpful thing you could possibly do. But, like, retrospect, 
it really like it calmed me down it was helpful but like you know that kind of stuff where like in the moment where like he just kind of sits back and he trusts that I know what to do it just it was in that moment where all the coping skills that I generally use at my disposal were inaccessible because it was Shabbos maybe I should think of more coping skills to is, is drinking a trigger like do you abstain from drinking as well yeah so i you know narcotics anonymous says alcohol and you abstain from all mind or mood altering substances so alcohol is a drug is considered a drug it certainly was in my life because the times that i couldn't use my drug of choice i would certainly use alcohol because like i said the effect was the same so i abstained from drinking as well my husband has a robust scotch collection and that's okay you know like i like i said like you know it's not Using drugs is, like, not even close to, like, the first thought that comes into my mind when I'm, like, struggling. I struggle, but it comes up, like, once in a while, but certainly at this point. It's not because, like, I went to meetings in the beginning and, like, that was it. It's because, like, to this day, like, I have a sponsor today. I go to a meeting once a week. Uh, you know, I have people in recovery coming for Shabbos. I have friends in recovery that I check in with when I struggle. So, like, I do step work. I read, like the NA literature like so it's not really like a one and done thing like I did it in the beginning and it was great and it really like set me up for life it's a resource that I continue to utilize and like use in my daily life like that by like addiction at bay it's just interesting that you have alcohol in your house and that's totally fine and and it's also remarkable that the thought of using only comes up rarely as you said, the way I learned about it, it's like, you're never safe from it. And once a drug addict, always a drug addict, or yes. once an addict, always an addict. Yes. They use that terminology for cheaters yes. also, infidelity. No, yeah. I'm, and I'm not in any form of dis disagreement about that. But, you know, I have people in recovery that I, you know, friends that do not allow alcohol in their house. Really, where you feel safe. Know, where you're feel, where you feel comfortable when i started becoming from like a question is like what if i'm at somebody's house and they make kiddush on wine what do i do like what do you do that's the number one person in a recovery question so being married is great because i pass it along to my husband also like people just think you're pregnant so like totally like you could just say like as a married person like no wine for me and, like you know <laughs> That makes it much easier. But as a single person, obviously, like Saturday day, all, you know, you just have to hear it. Okay, great. Like, what about Friday night? It's, it has to be all or nothing. What about food? The image is always donuts at those NA and AA meetings. Substituting one drug with another, aka sugar. <laughs> Why, yes, it is. But one won't get you a felony. <laughs> um, it certainly, it certainly is. Like I, like I said, you put the drugs down and and the person that used the drugs is still there, and you have to address, like, what those issues are that caused the drug use to begin with. So, like, absolutely, you will find more about yourself once you, like, stop using drugs than anything. Like, people act out in all sorts of ways, like, through food, through, you know, internet addiction, through sex, through, like, terrible relationships. Like, you see it all when people get clean, because take away, like, that primary coping skill, and you can either choose to, like, work on the person that's, like, broken, or you can, like, Keep hiding it with other with other things you know when i when i first started getting clean i was like a pack a day smoker and when i went to re <laughs> crazy obviously like drug use like i lost a lot of weight my weights like fluctuated over the years when i went to treatment the first time i went to an inpatient rehab and i gained 60 pounds in 90 days and this was right. like nobody told me about eating your feelings <laughs> like nobody alerted me to that and then anytime my parents would visit they would be like horrified like oh my gosh are you okay like i had to like go to target to get like 
large pajama pants to walk around as like my regular attire because I was like just I had ballooned because like it wasn't like I was eating for the first time it was like I was eating for the first second third fourth fifth like I just I didn't know how to stop because I was so uncomfortable in my own skin and like using drugs fixed that or like masqueraded that so like when the drugs went away like that discomfort came right back like glaring just showing its face so it, it's a daily struggle with like any area of my life you know like how when my food gets all out of whack I don't feel as good like when my you know when my social like when my relationships get out of whack when I feel like my like I'm not setting good boundaries when I'm like being codependent with like a person in my life like all of that stuff like makes me feel un like when I feel uncomfortable I find myself like making those like not the not the healthiest life decisions for myself because like that's what addiction is like the main difference in AA and NA what I like why I pick NA is because like the literature like it's not substance specific it talks about like just addiction like I really relate to like just addiction and like how it has manifested in literally every single area of my life funny because like I told my husband lately like I really want to like start going to a chiropractor and an acupuncturist because like I feel like I've been like really neglecting my self-care and, and the way that looks is so like I just so you know like I'm going to start spending a little bit more money on like you know getting a massage here and there and getting the chiropractor but you'll see a lot less money in like my Marshall's trips <laughs> because like I know that like sometimes like when I'm just like uncomfortable like I'll do something to like feel a little bit different to like give myself a little bit of a rush a little bit of an enjoyment so like you know the times where, like, I find, like, I can't really, like, be mindful about, like, self-care. Like, I spend way more money at Target than I, like, normally would if I'm, like, really mindful of, like, the things I eat and, like, the amount of sleep I'm getting and, like, whether or not, like, I'm addressing, like, some other self-care stuff. Like, if I get a manicure once a month, like, honestly, like, I spend less money at Target. Like, and it's it's unconscious until I really sit down and think about it and, like, see, like, it's really about, like, the entire like the balance of my life so like all that really is like just kind of like a manifestation of like you know what I identify as like addiction you know and like not like just being really uncomfortable in my own skin and like finding ways to like feel different you mentioned being broken and you have to fix that part in this 12 step because that broken part that broken piece makes you access and look for the drugs for the fix what part of you do you feel like was broken? A really good question. I, the way I was raised, I think, had a lot to do with it. Like, not necessarily that, like, like, my parents raised me, like, the way they thought was the best way to raise a kid. Retrospectively, like, it wasn't really the healthiest way for me. At least. But, you know, just growing up with, like, a lot of, like, family pressure and just, like, family dynamics and, you know, like, the type of relationship I had with my parents and, like, I think a lot of it had to do with like how I how I was brought up and I was raised. I had a I had a grandmother that had severe PTSD and I was like raised primarily by her. So my parents went to work. So like I remember as a kid like begging my parents like not to leave me alone with her. Like she was never like physically abusive, but like she was like really like emotionally unwell and she like projected a lot of that onto me. She lived in in fear a lot and she had a lot of like very clear PTSD symptoms that she put on like a little child. So I, I grew up like living in, in fear of like society in the world that like everyone is going to hurt me in one way or another. So I think like a lot of that stuff, like you don't realize how, how much of an effect it has on you in the moment. I mean, I guess I did if I asked my parents to like not leave me alone with her, but she's 
I love I I love her immensely and and she she helped raise me but like she she wasn't well and and I was raised by like not emotionally well people so kind of stuff like made me not feel so great in my own skin. You mentioned unsafe situations that you were in. Can you give us an example or two? Yeah, I mean I I've been arrested. I've totaled cars before. I uh I fell I I was driving high once I got in a fight with my my partner at the time and I like said like I I need to drive home but I I can't because I I'm too high. I was like but you need to leave my house right now. Whatever. It was like a, a silly argument and I and I knew I was like I'm going to crash. And then like 5 minutes on the freeway, I I rolled my SUV two and a half times and and had to crawl out of uh the driver's side window um because it was upside down and I didn't go to the hospital because I didn't want them to drug test me in the hospital. Interactions with police officers, interactions with with gang members, with a lot of people like committing crimes. Too many things. Like there's a lot. Certainly things that like put myself at risk and and other people around me. I at, when I was you know I pulled check fraud because you know it, it helped pay for my for my addiction. So kind of stuff that has like both like physical ramifications and like you know emotional ramifications. Sharing needles, putting my health at risk. I had a heart attack at uh at 21 because I overdosed and uh, I wasn't breathing for a little while. So I had to like spend three days in the cardiac unit at the hospital after overdosing. I would say that those are those are pretty dangerous situations. What work do you do now? I work in the substance abuse field. I work more like in the administrative side of it. Went to college. Uh, I got my bachelor's. Got a master's. Got like bunch of credentials basically like ever since i i got clean i i worked in in recovery and in one area or or another i work for a program from from the management side but i work mostly through a county contract that basically funds treatment for uh for people that aren't able to afford it otherwise can you talk a little bit about the firm community do you live in a mainstream firm community and are the 12-step meetings that you go to are there other firm people and what's it like I do. I, I live in a mainstream community. I live in in a city, a pretty large city with a pretty with a robust community. There certainly are snippets of people in recovery in the community. We all know each other. In terms of meetings, like in twelve step is like such like a huge organization that you'll certainly find people. You'll find a lot of off the derrick people. You'll you'll notice them by their names of like the Americanized version of like a very very clearly Yiddish name or like a very clearly. Hebrew name that nobody else would have and like obviously like not from but there's meetings that go on like within the firm community like not necessarily like they're not in a directory for example so they're not like an actual like AA meeting like copyright infringement kind of stuff it's not an actual NA meeting but it is a 12-step meeting that follows 12-step literature and like format of what a meeting go you know looks like and it happens to like be run by like from people in like somebody's house for example just so you know people are more comfortable in that environment because a lot of meetings are like in church basements for example and like sometimes like the language that is spoken meeting is like isn't really you know it's something that we're used to in the community we live in there are people in recovery any large community surprisingly more than you can think and then you can imagine do you prefer the jewish meetings (laughs) So AA is a huge, huge fellowship, and I love AA, and I appreciate it immensely. But like, there's something about like Narcotics Anonymous, and like, the, like so all those meetings, like in in people's backyards, is always AA. I feel like AA is like much more socially acceptable because it's like, okay, everyone could become an alcoholic, but like, really, like you got to be a derelict to be a drug addict. It's like this like mentality that like a lot of people have, 
I mean, like, even in the from community, like, okay, like, somebody drinks too much, like, let's get them some help. Like, oh, they're doing what now? Drugs are much more stigmatized than alcohol in, in any community, from community or not. So AA just happens to have, like, much more of a wider presence anywhere you go. So, like, most of those meetings in the backyard are, are usually AA format. Is there anything unique to the from meetings besides for obviously being AA and not NA? Yeah, the birthday cakes are kosher. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's the same format. It's the same of people. It really isn't unique. What the 12th step is, is you're carrying the message to the addict who still suffers. And I find that like in my own life, going to an NA meeting that I found like publicly on the website helped save my life and like move me towards a direction of like being this like from Jew who has this like wonderful amazing life and family that for me to like get all those benefits from NA and then like take it with me and not give it back to like the source for me is sometimes like feels a little selfish almost like yes there are I mean first off like it's you know the backyard meetings like once a week another day I can go to an NA meeting but I certainly try to prioritize because I want to make sure that like if, like, a 21-year-old that, like, went on birthright and had this, like, spiritual awakening at the Kotel, like, shows up to this meeting, like, broken and doesn't know that, like, any from backyard meetings and just goes online and finds, like, a meeting in the directory, like, that's the person I want to be there for. I have, a, I have a friend that I've known for 10 years. He grew up modern Orthodox, well, conservative, I guess, but, like, likes to learn Gemara. He grew up, like, in a very strong Jewish community and he's like he has a really hard time staying clean and in the middle of COVID we reconnected and he has been coming to my to our home for Shabbos like every Friday night for two years now like that's who I want to carry the message along to like not that like the backyard meetings aren't amazing and wonderful by any means so like but for me I feel like if I don't because like that's kind of what happens like people go meetings and they get their lives together and then they leave and then the new people come into meetings and don't see anyone with their lives together and like there's no incentives to stay it's like what future am i looking at so like if a person like me can like show up and like share the message that like this is the life that i live because i got clean and i came from such a low horrible place it would be a disservice if i didn't do that on like from the source do you have a good relationship with your parents now Do. My father is watching my children in, in the other room right now. <laughs> my parents were horrified when I decided to move to Israel. When we came back, they were they were very very happy. Yeah, I've I have a wonderful relationship. They haven't changed at all. The crazy part because I had to do the work on myself and I had to understand that they're wonderful people. They they really do love me. They love my children. They love my husband. But like there are certain skills that they did not grow up equipped with, and it never came from a malicious place. It just they didn't know what they didn't know. And like today I get to set boundaries on like how engaged they are with my life and my family. And, and we have a really wonderful relationship. Like they live 20 minutes away and they help me with my kids because my husband and I work full time. We have young children and they're always there and consistent. That's so beautiful. With boundaries. Do you have any words of wisdom, any closing remarks? If you feel that like you can't like picture like a life outside of the one you're living now, like Hashem is like able to like just work these like coordinate things in such a way that will just like blow your mind and and it always what is it like hindsight it's always twenty twenty like you don't realize it in the moment when you're in the thick of it but like there is always 
a way to like come back. Like nothing is permanent, and like there's always like a shuva. You're never too far gone to. Thank you so much for doing this. I know it took us a few tries. Yes. <laughs> we finally made it happen. I so appreciate you coming on, sharing your story. And if anyone has any questions and wants resources, they can contact me. Somehow I'm I, I'd like to remain anonymous on this podcast, but like I said, like you, know, you could contact me and I will put you both in touch. I, I would love to get in touch and help anyone, any parent, any person, any like anyone listening that that struggles because like there is a way out for for anyone, both the person struggling and the person that loves struggling. Thank you so much for listening until the end. I hope you learned something from this episode. If you'd like to reach out or be connected with the guest, please do reach out. Join the WhatsApp group. Next week, we have Halachic Innovation with Professor Chaim Seyman on this podcast. See you next week. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event. So give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view an endless field of wildflowers or a sunset that needs no filter make this a summer to share and save with a capable kia suv or powerful sedan see your local kia dealer or visit kia.com to learn more kia movement that inspires call 800-334-KIA for details always drive safely sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only quantities are limited must take delivery by 7824.